0: Chapter 20 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Gladstone supports popular suffrage. Mr. Gladstone at last declared himself a convinced and definite supporter of the popular suffrage. The declaration came about in a sudden and unexpected sort of way. Wednesday in the House of Commons is one of the days which is considered to be the property of the private members until that period of the session comes when the government, whatever it may be, having muddled away the time at its disposal, finds itself compelled by the necessities of the case to absorb all the sittings of the House. On Wednesday, the 11th of April, 1864, a bill was brought in by a private member for the extension of the franchise in boroughs. On such occasions it is usual for members of the government to keep quiet and take no conspicuous part either way. Some minister usually rises and utters a few careful and commonplace words, committing the government to nothing in particular. On this occasion, Mr. Gladstone struck into the debate and even with vehemence. He contended that the burden of proof rested not upon those who claimed for the working classes the right to the franchise, but on those who denied that right. We are told, Mr. Gladstone said, that the working classes do not agitate for the suffrage, but is it well that we should wait until they do agitate? In my opinion, agitation by the working classes upon any political subject whatever ought not to be made a condition previous to any parliamentary movement, but on the contrary is to be deprecated and, if possible, prevented by wise and provident measures. An agitation by the working classes, he pointed out, is not like an agitation by the classes above them having leisure. The agitation of the classes having leisure is easily conducted." Every hour of their time has not a money value. Their wives and children are not dependent on the application of those hours of labor. But when a working man finds himself in such a condition that he must abandon that daily labor on which he is strictly dependent for his daily bread, it is only because then, in railway language, the danger signal is turned on, and because he feels a strong necessity for action and a distrust in the rulers who have driven him to that necessity the present state of things i rejoice to say does not indicate that distrust but if we admit that we must not allege the absence of agitation on the part of the working classes as a reason why the parliament of england and the public mind of england should be indisposed to entertain the discussion of this question in the course of his speech Mr. Gladstone asked whether the working classes are not our own flesh and blood. This speech naturally created a great sensation. Some of Mr. Gladstone's own colleagues seemed to be nearly frightened out of their lives. The conservative newspapers wrote of it as if it were a modern reproduction of Rousseau's doctrine of the social contract. The measure which Mr. Gladstone advocated was not carried at that time, and nobody had the least expectation that it was likely to be carried. But everybody knew perfectly well that the lowering of the suffrage to admit the working classes had become a matter of certainty when once that speech had been spoken. Then, at last, it was plain to everyone that Mr. Gladstone had absolutely broken away from all the traditions of his early parliamentary career— he had put himself at the head of the free trade movement. He had put himself at the head of the movement for the repeal of taxes upon knowledge. Now he was putting himself at the head of the movement for the extension of the right of voting so as to admit the working classes and the poor generally to the exercise of a vote as to the persons whom they considered best fitted to represent them. From that moment, it was merely a question of time, of sessions, when the principle of popular representation should be carried into law and into practice. Two years later, the government of which Mr. Gladstone was the leader in the House of Commons brought in a bill to extend the franchise so far as to make what I may call the better conditioned of the working classes free to exercise a vote at an election. One great difficulty had been removed out of the way of any movement for the extension of the suffrage. Lord Palmerston was dead. Everyone knew that so long as Palmerston lived, he would be sure to throw cold water on any proposal to give a vote to the working classes. His influence in the negative sense was immense, and it was thoroughly understood, as I have said by men like John Bright, that no good measure of suffrage reform had a real chance in the house of commons while palmerston was still leader of the government but now palmerston was gone that strange career which had fostered every revolution abroad and discouraged every genuine reform at home had come to an end it would not be easy to get readers at this time to understand what an influence was exercised over the house of commons and over the English public generally, by the easy-going, careless, contemptuous ways of Lord Palmerston. He was able to infuse a sort of natural cynicism into the well-to-do classes of English life, which made them think it ridiculous to take serious trouble about any questions of political reform. He represented exactly the mind of the sort of man who, in domestic affairs at least, Cared nothing about anybody. When domestic politics went against Lord Palmerston, he made some great outburst in foreign affairs, and then the man in the streets threw up his hat for him and shrieked aloud that Palmerston was the one who could make the foreign tyrants shake in their shoes. It is not likely that there will ever again arise in English politics a man of the type of Lord Palmerston. He was not a Tory he laughed at toryism and its old-fashioned prejudices but he did not care one straw for any really liberal measure the enthusiasm of gladstone was unintelligible to him he could not understand why a man like gladstone should concern himself in the least about the question whether the working classes ought or ought not to have any share in the suffrage he was a genial kindly-hearted man who would have liked people to be as happy as possible, but it was not in his nature to think that people were any the happier for having votes. He went through the world, gay and careless, so far as domestic affairs were concerned, and only stirred to enthusiasm when some foreign question arose on which he was much more likely to be wrong than right. As I have said, there was a sort of truce to the question of suffrage reform, while Palmerston lived. Now that he was out of the field, Earl Russell and Mr. Gladstone resolved to bring in a bill for the extension and expansion of the suffrage. It was not really a very sweeping measure of reform. Looking back now at its introduction, we can only wonder how so tentative and limited a measure could have been expected to satisfy the demands of the English democracy one has to ask in amazement what would have been thought of such a measure in Canada or in the Australian colonies. Still, it was a distinct advance for the time, and it had the qualified approval and the full practical support of John Bright, who now, since the death of Richard Cobden, was left the great leader of the popular reform movement in England. The measure, although made as moderate and as limited as even timorous reformers could have desired, did not pass through the House of Commons. Then, as much more lately, Mr. Gladstone found himself confronted by a formidable secession from the ranks of his own party. A number of liberals declared against this reform bill and supported the Tories in their opposition to it. The opposition was a phenomenon which occurs again and again in the history of an English liberal ministry. Some of the followers of the ministry are always sure to think that the leaders are going too far in the way toward democratic institutions, and they lose heart or turn back or even join the opponents of all liberalism. This happened in 1832 when Lord Grey and Lord John Russell brought in their reform bill. It happened when Lord John Russell brought in his reform bill in 1860. It happened in 1866 when Lord Russell, as prime minister in the House of Lords, and Mr. Gladstone, as leader of the House of Commons, brought in their reform bill. And it was to happen again, as we shall see, when twenty years later Mr. Gladstone brought in his measure of home rule for Ireland. In 1866, the reform bill was not liberal enough to arouse any great passion of enthusiasm in the country, and yet it was too liberal for the faint-hearted members of the radical party. It would be needless now to go into any details of the measure or any criticism of them, and indeed details of that great controversy have rather a personal than a political interest. Mr. Gladstone, Mr. Bright, and Mr. Disraeli were seen at their very best in that memorable fight but of course everyone knew that these men would do their best in such a strife the honours of the debate were really carried off by mr robert lowe who died years after in obscurity as lord sherbrooke robert lowe had one distinction in new south wales where he had become a prominent politician he came over to settle in london and being a man of great literary gifts, he obtained a position as leader-writer for the Times. He found a seat in the House of Commons and was commonly regarded as a man likely to make a name in parliamentary debate. For a long time, however, he gave no distinct proof of any capacity that way. His opportunity came with Mr. Gladstone's Reform Bill of 1866. Lowe had somehow acquired the more narrow-minded literary man's hatred of all popular reform with him culture ranked as the first and foremost of everything the idea of a man being allowed to vote at an election who could not read greek and latin was revolting to his soul he was not really a great greek and latin scholar he did not know greek nearly as well as gladstone did or as john stuart mill did but he prided himself more on his classical knowledge than was the way of Gladstone or Stuart Mill. He had a contempt which he did not even pretend to conceal for the working classes and the poor generally. Therefore, he threw his whole soul into an impassioned opposition to Gladstone's mild and moderate measure of reform. He had a marvellous literary gift of phrase making. Of paradox, of sarcasm, and of illustration. He had read much in many literatures. He had apparently a wonderful memory, and whenever an idea occurred to him, some quotation floated with it double swan and shadow. He was certainly the comet of a season. He dazzled and startled the whole House of Commons. I heard almost all those great debates, and I remember them well. I know that Gladstone was at his best, that Bright was at his best, that Disraeli was at his best, but I cannot help acknowledging that the chief interest was absorbed by Mr. Lowe. Many things were against him. He had a very bad voice and a wretched articulation. His sight was miserably short, and if he had any notes he found it almost impossible to read them. He had to compete with three men whose voices and articulation were magnificent, and yet he held his own. I was greatly interested in the whole struggle and in the part which Mr. Lowe took in it. I came to know him very well later on, and found him, as many people said they did not find him, a genial and agreeable companion but his success in those reform debates of eighteen sixty six and eighteen sixty seven was a wonder and a puzzle to me i could not dispute the success but it astonished me quite as much as did the success of sir bulwer lytton in the former days which i have described i could not question the wonderful freshness of lowe's phrase-making and the aptness of his illustrations Still, I could not understand, and I cannot understand now, how he came to carry off the honors of debate from Gladstone, from Disraeli, and from Bright. The one thing certain to my mind is that he did it. It will not settle the question to say that the House of Commons was apathetic about reform and was only too glad to hear somebody put the arguments against reform in sparkling and brilliant sentences. All that was done as well as it needed to be done by Mr. Disraeli until the following year, when he became a reforming statesman himself. Yet not even Mr. Disraeli aroused the enthusiasm of the Tories themselves nearly so much as Mr. Lowe did during the season of which he blazed the comet. The reform bill broke down under two influences the influence of those who were opposed to all reform and the influence of those who complained that by that bill they were not getting reform enough the measure had to be given up and earl russell and mr gladstone resigned office mr gladstone in his closing speech on the bill rose to a height of eloquence which he had never exceeded before and has not surpassed since mr disraeli had been unwise enough to remind mr gladstone in the course of the debate that he gladstone had spoken against the reform bill of eighteen thirty two in the oxford union debating society mr disraeli it should be brought to the memory of the reader as i have i think brought it to his memory already had begun life as an extreme radical reformer the right honourable gentleman said mr gladstone secure in the recollection of his own consistency has taunted me with the errors of my boyhood. When he addressed the Honorable Member for Westminster, Mr. Stuart Mill, he showed his magnanimity by declaring that he would not take the philosopher to task for what he wrote twenty-five years ago. But when he caught one who thirty-six years ago, just emerged from boyhood, and still an undergraduate at Oxford, had expressed an opinion adverse to the Reform Bill of 1832, of which he had so long and bitterly repented then the right honourable gentleman could not resist the temptation he a parliamentary leader of twenty years standing is so ignorant of the house of commons that he positively thought that he got a parliamentary advantage by exhibiting me as an opponent of the reform bill of eighteen thirty two it is true i deeply regret it but i was bred under the shadow of the great name of canning and under the shadow of the yet more venerable name of burke my youthful mind and imagination were impressed just the same as the mature mind of the right honourable gentleman is now impressed i had conceived that fear and alarm of the first reform bill in my undergraduate days at oxford which the right honourable gentleman now feels my position sir in regard to the liberal party is in all points the opposite of earl russell's i have none of the claims he possesses i came among you an outcast from those with whom i associated driven from them i admit by no arbitrary act but by the slow and resistless forces of conviction I came among you to make use of the legal phraseology in forma pauperis You received me with a kindness, with indulgence, generosity, and I may even say with some measure of confidence. The relation between us has assumed such a form that you can never be my debtors, but that I must forever be your debtor. In the closing sentences of his speech Mr. Gladstone said, you cannot fight against the future. Time is on our side. The great social forces which move onwards in their might and majesty, and which the tumult of our debates does not for a moment impede or disturb, those great social forces are against you. They are marshaled on our side, and the banner which we now carry in this fight though perhaps at this moment it may droop over our sinking heads yet soon again will float in the eye of heaven and it will be borne by the firm hands of the united people of the three kingdoms perhaps not to an easy but to a certain and a not far distant victory this was one of the greatest speeches gladstone had ever made and the frank explanation of his conversion to liberal principles put his antagonist, Mr. Disraeli, hopelessly in the wrong. The reform bill was defeated by means of the alliance between Mr. Lowe and the Tories, and Lord Russell and Mr. Gladstone resigned office. Lord Derby and Mr. Disraeli came back to power. Now what had happened in the meantime? Mr. Disraeli and Mr. Lowe had opposed the Reform Bill of Russell and Gladstone, on the distinct ground that a lowering of the suffrage was the surrender of the Government of England into the hands of the ignorant, the improvident, and the reckless. That was the case distinctly set up over and over again by Mr. Disraeli and Mr. Lowe, and on those grounds the Reform Bill was lost. The moment Lord Derby and Mr. Disraeli came back to power, it was made known that they intended to introduce a reform bill of their own. The Houses of Parliament met on the fifth of February, eighteen sixty seven and the Queen's speech announced that the attention of Parliament would again be called to the question of the representation of the people. Mr. Disraeli himself explained afterwards very fully in his speech why he had thus come round he told the public that he had spent the recess in educating his party up to the level of a liberal suffrage. Apparently his conviction was that a new reform bill had to come somehow or other, and he did not see why he should not introduce it as well as anybody else. It must give the stranger some subject for odd reflections on English politics when he reads of an English statesman who turned out of office a greater English statesman because he had introduced a measure for lowering the parliamentary suffrage and having got into office by that means, at once set about to reduce the suffrage still lower than his predecessor had attempted to do. This is exactly what happened. Mr. Disraeli brought in a scheme of reform which, though in its beginnings it seemed moderate enough, led to the resignation of three of his most important colleagues, who naturally thought the introduction of any reform bill was an abandonment of the proclaimed Tory sentiments of the year before. The late Lord Shaftesbury said in the letter, It seems to me monstrous that a body of men who resisted Mr. Gladstone's bill as an extreme measure with such great pertinacity should accept the power he retired from and six months after, introduce a bill many degrees nearer than his to universal suffrage and establish beyond all contradiction the principle they so fiercely combated of giving a predominant interest to any class. Robert Lowe well described the situation. What was a conflict last year, he said, is a race now. Mr. Disraeli, as he accepted the support of the secessionist liberals in opposing Mr. Gladstone's reform bill, accepted now the alliance of the extreme radicals in the extension and the expansion of his own measure. The result was that the bill became practically a measure of household suffrage and went in the popular direction far beyond the limits which Mr. Gladstone had endeavoured to go. Mr. Disraeli, of course, did not care in the least for any principle of consistency. In his heart he was probably still a radical reformer, but as I have suggested before, he took up with the Tories because there was not much competitive talent in their ranks, and he had a good chance of securing a leading place. No doubt in his soul and sense he despised the stupidity of the men who could really believe that a household suffrage meant the ruin of England so he allowed himself to be led by the radical party of the house of commons and he surpassed mr gladstone and mr bright in his measure for the extension of the suffrage robert lowe found himself in a peculiar position during the progress of disraeli's reform bill in the former session he had to fight against gladstone and bright and was supported by disraeli in the session of 1867. He had to fight against Gladstone, Bright and Disraeli. He stuck to his professed principles to do him justice. He had proclaimed himself an opponent of a popular suffrage, and he kept up his opposition to the end. He had a perfect contempt for the poor and the working class and the people who live in these small houses. He fought with wonderful pertinacity and skill all through the long debates of 1867. His cause, of course, was lost. It could not be otherwise when the liberals and the Tories were alike determined to carry a measure of reform. But he fought with the desperate tenacity of a brilliant gladiator. To this day, I never could quite understand the secret of his personal success the question of his position as a parliamentary debater has been settled long since. Nobody now would think of describing Robert Lowe as an orator belonging to the class of Gladstone or Bright or Disraeli. His very defects of voice and articulation would of themselves have almost of necessity excluded him from such a place. Part of his success, I think, was found in the fact that he was a brilliant literary man and leader-writer, Addressing a political assembly in a style to which that assembly was not accustomed. It was as if we could imagine Junius making a speech in the peculiar style of Junius the writer. Anyhow, the success was certain, and the most conspicuous figure of those two sessions of debate was not Bright, not Gladstone, not Disraeli, but Robert Lowe. The remainder of Lowe's career was nothing he published a volume of verses, he was made a peer, and he died in comparative obscurity. He was a man who had, I believe, made many enemies by his bitterness of tongue and his sarcastic ways. I can only repeat for myself that I have the most pleasing and genial recollections of my acquaintanceship with him, and that although we had hardly any political opinions in common, and he never even professed to have any sympathy with my national cause i always found him kindly friendly and personally sympathetic at the close of eighteen sixty seven earl russell the lord john russell of former years announced his determination to retire finally from active political life and from the leadership of the liberal party in the house of lords Lord Russell distinctly pointed to Mr. Gladstone as the future liberal prime minister. Not many weeks after, it was announced to the public that Lord Derby, owing to his failing health, had given up the premiership and that Mr. Disraeli had become prime minister. So the two great political rivals were started in a new sort of rivalry. Mr. Disraeli was prime minister of England... And it was perfectly certain that should his party be turned out of office, Mr. Gladstone would be his successor. The event came about sooner than any one in England could have expected. End of Chapter Twenty.